So glad to have you back to Parkside Green's weekly Bible study. Uh, Pastor Steve here. I am thankful for each one of you, and I'm also thankful for the gift of humor, right, which can kind of balance out the seriousness of life. So I got a couple of jokes for you as a prelude to studying some serious sayings of Jesus. Do you know why ants can't get sick? Do you know why ants are unable to get sick? It's because of their antibodies. And why should you never write with a broken pencil? Why, why should you never try to write with a broken pencil? It's pointless. Do you hear about the two guys who stole a calendar? I don't know if you heard about those two guys who stole a calendar. They got six months each. And what did Cinderella say when photos were, her photos were delayed coming into the store? Someday my prince will come. <laughs> Proverbs 17.22 says that a joyful heart is good medicine. So I hope it wasn't all groans for you there. Maybe at least a chuckle. I'm a dad. I get to tell dad jokes. <laughs> and this week, you see, we're moving from hard sayings of Jesus in chapter 16 two serious sayings of Jesus in chapter 17, and, and we'll study Jesus's serious sayings under three main headings. Number one, the seriousness of sin and faith in verses one to six. Secondly, the seriousness of duty and thanks in verses seven to 19. And thirdly, the seriousness of judgment day in verses 20 to 27. So we begin with the seriousness of sin and faith in verses 1 to 6. Uh, Jesus, you remember, he's still on his journey to Jerusalem, and he says to his disciples, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. I mean, in this life, we're all going to face temptations to sin, to transgress God's law, to, to fall short of his glory, but that doesn't excuse a person from being the cause of temptation to others. Woe to him through whom temptations come, one who misleads or lures one of Jesus's followers to stumble into sin. You see, the physical consequences of drowning in the sea with a millstone around one's neck are actually better than the eternal spiritual consequences of causing a little one to sin. And I was helped, maybe you are too, by the parallel passage in Matthew 18, where Jesus has just called a child into the midst of the disciples. And then Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned to death in the sea. It is very serious to cause a little one who believes in Jesus to sin. So Jesus' followers must pay attention to themselves. When a, a, a Christian brother or sister sins, Jesus says we are to rebuke them, we're to call the sin out. And if they repent, we are to forgive them. In fact, if they sin against us seven times in a day, that'd be like twice in the morning, twice in the afternoon, three times at night, and seven times they turn away from their sin and true repentance, we must forgive them every time. One commentator said, we need courage to rebuke and compassion to forgive. Courage to rebuke and compassion to forgive. 
Now, Jews of that time thought it was honorable to forgive three times. That was like going above and beyond. But Christ's followers are to continually forgive those who repent. I don't know if you've ever had to forgive someone who repented seven times in a day. That, that's a tall order, which is probably why the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? It's not that they had no faith, but their faith was weak and, and small. It needed to be strengthened or increased. Thankfully, Jesus replies, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry bush, which was famous for its aggressive roots, be uprooted and planted in the sea and, and it would obey you. Even a small amount of faith, a tiny little mustard seed, one-tenth of an inch in diameter, if it's genuine trust in God, it can bring seemingly impossible results. A little faith in our great Lord can keep us on track. So increase our faith, Lord, so that we can keep on forgiving others. Sin and faith are serious issues. Which brings us to the seriousness of duty and thanks. Jesus explains that when a, a servant, or bond servant it could be translated, comes in from the field after doing their job with plowing or tending the sheep, the master does not typically invite the servant to recline at the dinner table. Instead, it would have been more typical to tell the servant to prepare supper and dress properly to serve the master at dinner, and then only afterward would the servant eat and drink. In first century Palestinian relationships, servants were not usually thanked for doing what they were commanded to do. And similarly, Jesus' disciples, when they've done all they were commanded, should realize they're unworthy servants who have just done their duty. God owes us nothing. We owe God everything. Obedience is what we owe to God. It's never something that puts God in our debt. You know, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, the whole duty of man to keep his commandments. So doing our duty to God is serious. And so, in its own way, is giving thanks to God also serious. As Jesus is still heading to Jerusalem to culminate his mission on earth, he passes along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As you know, some strict, more exclusive Jews would never venture into Samaritan territory because it was populated by people who had intermarried with non-Jews. But Jesus' mission took him to all sorts of people, including the often despised Samaritans. So as Jesus enters a village by the Samaritan-Galilean border, he's met by ten lepers. And because lepers were ceremonially unclean due to their highly contagious skin diseases, they stood at a distance from Jesus. But rather than crying out, unclean, unclean, as prescribed in Luke, uh, Leviticus 13, they boldly lift up their voices collectively and shout, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Probably they had heard enough about Jesus and his miracles to hope that he might heal them, just as he had healed a leper at the beginning of his ministry, way back in Luke 5. And you notice that they aren't just saying something like, hey buddy, can you lend a hand over here? Rather, they recognize Jesus as the master 
the one who has authority, and as the master, they humbly plead with him to have mercy or pity on them. So having now seen them and having heard their plea for mercy, we might expect Jesus to go over and lay his hands on them and heal them immediately. That would be typical. But instead, Jesus tells them, still fully leprous as they were, go and show yourselves to the priests. What's that all about? Well, these are very hopeful words from Jesus because Leviticus 14 explains that priests were the ones who were able to reclassify people as clean from their leprosy when they'd been healed. So even though there was not yet any tangible evidence of healing, the lepers were to act in faith. Wouldn't you like to know more of the details? I know I would. I mean, how long of a walk was it to the nearest priest? Was it just a short little stroll or was it miles and miles? Were they riddled with doubts and just kind of trudging along? Or were they full of faith? Were they power walking? Uh, were they quiet as they walked? Or, or did they talk? And, and if so, what did they say to each other? How far did they go? Were they a quarter of the way, halfway, almost all the way there before they noticed that they were cleansed? And, and did that healing happen instantly? Or, or did it unfold gradually over maybe several minutes? Luke does not give us any of those details, but he does give us the main point which is, as they went, they were cleansed. Think about that. As they went, they were cleansed. When they started their walk, they were ostracized lepers. They were unable to join others at the temple. They were forbidden to touch others or have others touch them. They were outcasts. But as they trusted in Jesus and as they obeyed Jesus, did what he said, they were cleansed. Their diseased skin was fully healed. I mean, that was truly a walk to remember for them. Well, one of these guys notices what's happened, and he turns around and he starts heading back to Jesus. Right? He's not just happy for himself, which I'm sure he was, but he's praising God with a loud voice. He's letting everybody within earshot know about it. And when he gets back, he falls on his face at Jesus' feet, giving Jesus thanks. You remember before he had to stand at a distance from Jesus, but now that he's healed, he can come close to Jesus right there at his feet. It's a very happy ending for this thankful former leper when Jesus tells him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And uh, because of the Greek word sozo used here translated as made you well can also be translated as saved, as in fact it is in Luke 7, verse 50, most commentators believe this man was healed both physically and spiritually, that he was made well in his body and his soul. Oh, and by the way, the only cleansed leper to return to give thanks to Jesus was a Samaritan. That's every bit as shocking, surprising as the, the unlikely hero of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan back in Luke chapter 10. I think there's a word to the wise here also, that if people do not give thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. That's what we see with the thankless nine. I'm sure they were happy about their changed circumstances. Their lives had just been rocked in a very positive way, but they never stopped to give praise to God. 
They like the gift, but they fail to thank the gift giver. They like the gift, but they fail to give thanks to the gift giver. And it bugs Jesus, right? We're not ten cleansed, or where are the nine? Was, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Ten asked Jesus for mercy. Ten were cleansed, but only this one praised God. And, and notice here that praising God is interchangeable with thanking Jesus, who is God. Well, presumably, I mean, the nine had heard that thankful one praising God in a loud voice. They, they saw him break away from their pack, heading back to Jesus, but they did not follow his good example. I can be like that. I can be like the nine. Maybe you can identify, a, a, a pray to God about something, and when God graciously answers my prayer affirmatively, I'm so glad the problem is resolved, but I forget to actually go back and thank God. We see from Jesus' reaction to this that thanking God is a serious issue. And lastly, we see that Judgment Day is a very serious issue. Uh, maybe you noticed in your own study that that word day or days appears 10 times in 10 verses. 10 times between verses 22 and 31. And in most cases, the day here refers to a day of judgment, either past or future. You see, with King Jesus there, in a sense, the kingdom of God was in their midst. God's kingdom was already there in the person of Jesus, the king. But it was also not yet there in its fullness, which would come in the future. And as the days were coming, when Jesus' disciples would desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, yet they would not see it. I think this is saying that the, desire, the disciples will desire to have Jesus with them, but he'll no longer be on earth, and he will not have yet returned to the earth. You see, Jesus says, after he suffered many things and been rejected by the current generation, his disciples won't see him anymore. And they, and I think we today, in that situation, are not to follow those who say, look there, look here for Jesus. No, Jesus' return in his day, the return of the Son of Man, is going to be very public, very visible, like when lightning flashes and lights up the whole sky from east to west, horizon to horizon. Everyone will see Jesus' return. And his point is just make sure you're ready for it. Because the day is coming when the Son of Man is revealed, when Jesus returns, and that's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. People were just going along with their ordinary lives, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, and then suddenly the flood came and destroyed them all who were not on the ark. And in the same way, in the days of Lot, when the people of Sodom were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, stuff like we do all the time, suddenly fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. I mean, life seemed to be going on normal, you know, do-do-do-da-do. <laughs> people were not prepared for God's sudden judgment. Same with when Jesus comes back. Many people will be caught off guard, and it'll be too late then. 
That is not a time to be concerned with the goods in our houses. It, it's no time to look back longingly like Lot's wife did with Sodom. It's no time to be concerned with preserving our earthly lives. Rather, it's a time to be losing our lives for Jesus' sake. You see, when Jesus descends from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 tells us that his followers who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So as we go through our normal activities, ordinary day-to-day lives, we want to be prepared for Jesus's return. We want to be like the one who's sleeping in the bed at night or, or the one who's grinding grain in the day who is taken to be with the Lord. Now, outwardly, each of these pairs, the two in the bed and the two ladies grinding uh, at, at, during the day, they look the same, right? They're doing the same activities, but then whew, they're separated, right? So make sure you are trusting in Jesus and you're living for him, that you're ready for his return. You don't want to be like Jesus's unprepared enemies who end up as food for the birds, as we see in Revelation 19. In John 5, 24, Jesus says that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. That is good news as we consider the seriousness of Judgment Day. Well, as with previous chapters, there's much here that is unique found just in the Gospel of Luke. There are many possible ways we might apply uh, aspects of Luke 17 to our lives. Let's consider these four questions in closing. Number one, am I taking Jesus' teaching on sin and forgiveness seriously. When when someone repeatedly sins against me and repeatedly truly repents, do I repeatedly forgive them from the heart or do I continue to hold it against them? Am I taking Jesus' teaching on sin and forgiveness seriously? Secondly, do I ever think that after all that I've done for God, God should serve or thank me? Or do I know I'm an unworthy servant just doing my duty. And and what helps me remember that even when I obey, uh, I'm just an unworthy servant, an unprofitable servant, having done what is my duty. Thirdly, in my need, do I call out for Jesus, uh, the master, to have mercy on me? And when Jesus answers, am I sure to give Jesus thanks right away? When Jesus answers, when he provides, when he blesses, am I sure to return and give thanks to him right away? Fourth and finally, am I living for Jesus and trusting in his death for my sins to forgive me in such a way that I am prepared for the day of judgment when he returns? Am I living for Jesus and trusting in his atoning death to bring forgiveness for my sins in such a way that I'm prepared for the day of judgment when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every time we confess our sins to you in repentance, you forgive us even more than seven times in a day. And so we ask that you please put it in our hearts to extend to others that gracious, repeated forgiveness that you extend to us. 
And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for all the times we've failed to praise you. We've asked you for something and received it from you, but forgot or just never bothered to thank you. Lord, would you forgive us and make us more like the thankful one and less like the thankless nine. Lastly, we thank you that Jesus is coming back in a way that we cannot miss, that it'll be visible and public. And we thank you that on that day of judgment, there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.